morning. Good morning on this last Sunday of the year. Yeah, it's still November, I know. But if you are familiar at all with the church year and the church calendar, you know that the church year begins with Advent, and next week's Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, which makes this the last Sunday of the church year. And that's why I picked this particular parable for us to consider this morning. From Luke chapter 12, it's a very short parable. We're just reading uh, six verses this morning. Luke 12, verses 35 to 40. Where Jesus says to his disciples, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds him watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. There is, congregation, something seriously wrong, even shocking, about this short little parable, and I wonder if you have already caught it, especially if you are a fan of these folks. Pictured on the screen is the cast of the PBS series, of course, Downton Abbey, which ended Six years ago, it was, at the time, the world's most watched TV show. I was addicted, I confess. Since then, of course, they've also produced two additional movies, the most recent one this year. Set in the early 1900s, this BBC production followed the life of an imaginary aristocratic family, the Crawleys and their domestic servants. And the effect that the great historical events of the early 1900s had on their lives and on the British social hierarchy of that day and age. It is the hierarchy, the ranking of each person in the home in terms of importance, that especially caught your attention. There was a very clear social separation between the Crawleys and the domestic servants as it would have been in any aristocratic family of the day. That social separation in terms of honor and respect and value carried over to a clear physical separation as well, with the lord of the manor and his family living upstairs and the servants downstairs. What you also learn is that there is a very clear social order among the domestic staff. The butler on top of the order in Downton Abbey, the undisputed master of the servants, was the stern and upright Mr. Carson. Scullery and kitchen mates on the bottom. 
and all sorts of footmen, ladies' maids, and valets in between. This social ranking in the home between the family and the servants and among the servants themselves was strictly observed. The roles and expectations structured and clear. And in a real home such as that pictured in Downton Abbey, what Jesus describes in the parable we read this morning would never, ever happen. It would be shocking, unimaginable. Jesus, as Luke 9 verse 51 tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Everything Luke writes between chapter 9, verse 51, and the day Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem for the last time is referred to by Bible scholars as the travel narrative. The teachings and the miracles of Jesus on that journey that Luke considered to be significant enough to record. In chapter 12 of his gospel, where you find today's parable, we hear Jesus give his disciples and the crowds that followed him a whole series of warnings. Warnings about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who intentionally lived one way in public and another way in private. About fearing the right persons, not those who can kill the body, but the one, God, who has power to cast into hell about the seductive power of earthly wealth, about having to witness to Jesus in dangerous circumstances, but to trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, about being anxious over what to eat or drink or wear rather than seeking first God's kingdom. And then in the verses we read today, Jesus calls them, he calls all of us to be ready for his coming again. Yes, he will go to Jerusalem, there he will be rejected, crucified by the people he came to save. But on the third day he will be raised from the dead and soon after ascend to heaven and sit at the Father's right hand from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Be ready, says Jesus, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. And then you get this little parable with its two images and pictures of readiness. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. First, be dressed ready for service. Literally, let your loins be girded. People back then wore these long robes that came down to their feet, and these robes were worn loosely around the waist without a belt if you were just hanging out. To tie them up with a belt was a sign of readiness either for leaving on a journey or for some activity and service. Household servants of Jesus' day understood this image very well. After all, they were always on duty to carry out a master's orders. As with every servant on staff at Downton Abbey, it was the priority of every household servant in Jesus' day to please the master, be at his disposal for whatever he needed, and obey the master's will. Second, keep your lamps burning. 
In homes without windows, you had to be on the ball 24-7 to keep those lamps alight, especially if you knew the master was returning home from a journey but didn't know when. You did not want the master coming home to a dark house. In the same way, we must be ready by staying close to the one who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that he finds us walking and living according to his light, his commands. So then, says Jesus, be like household servants who, robes always hiked up, lamps always lit, are ready to wait on, please their master upon his return. The thing is, when I walked Downton Abbey, I knew I'd rather be living upstairs than downstairs. Who wants to be a servant or slave, subject to the pleasure of some master? Slavery hasn't been abolished in most parts of the world because we all thought it was a good thing. So while it was fun to watch Downton Abbey and observe how life once used to be in Britain in the early 1900s, and it helps you understand that master-servant dynamic that largely determined life in the culture of Jesus' day, it is not a way of life I'd want to embrace today. Nor, I suspect, would you. But this was life in Jesus' day. And the premise of this parable of a master whose servants had to be ready for his return at any time was very easy for his listeners to understand. They understood how such a household worked. The master, almost certainly a very wealthy man in this case, was ranked number one. And as described by author Kenneth Bailey, who lived and studied in the Middle East for 40 years in his book, Jesus, Through Middle Eastern Eyes, the order and the rank of the rest of the household went like this. Master, then mistress, then children, then stewards, then permanent paid staff, then day laborers, and finally servants. You see who's on the bottom of the ladder, right? Servants. Literally, the Greek word used, doulos, means household slaves, the lowest of the low. A doulos was absolutely dependent on the master and expected to be totally committed to the master. The only pay a doulos received was the room and board needed to live and to be physically, mentally able to serve the master. It was to be below the lowest person on the Downton Abbey staff. So it might not be your favorite way of thinking of yourself. You might not like to hear Jesus calling you to adopt this sort of position in life. And really, we don't need to take all this all that seriously, do we? After all, doesn't the Bible say that as Christians we are God's children, sons and daughters of our Father in heaven? We get that we are called to serve, saved to serve is an old reformed cliché. But thinking of ourselves in the position of the lowest of the low, that's another matter altogether, isn't it? You might even say, that's a little beneath my dignity. And that is what makes what you find in the middle of this parable 
so surprising and shocking. We are to be dressed and ready, lamps lit, to wait on the master. Okay. It will be good for those servants, literally, blessed are those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. And then comes this theological, sociological shocker. This little verse that totally turns upside down what we thought our position as servants meant for our relationship to the master and for the way we see ourselves. Listen. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Well, wait a minute, that can't be right. Can it? Maybe Luke got the story wrong, because who ever heard of such a thing? Truly I tell you, says Jesus, he will dress himself to serve. He, the master, Jesus, the son of man, will dress himself, will gird up his loins. He will assume the position of the lowest of the low. He will have them recline at the table. He will invite the servants, the doulosis, to sit at the table where the master and his equals only usually sit. And get this, he will come and wait on them. The master, the one on top of the ladder, takes his place at the very bottom. And not just takes his place there, but serves and waits on those at the bottom of the ladder. The one on top of the ladder becomes something even lower than what was thought to be the bottom of the ladder, a slave to the slaves. It is A huge surprise, a shock. Can you imagine Lord Grantham waiting on and serving the kitchen maid Daisy on Downton Abbey out of the question over Mr. Carson's dead body? Kenneth Bailey describes what an Arab scholar had to say about this verse in Jesus' parable. He said that it's certainly the custom in the Middle East for a master of a house to serve his guests. Remember, that's what Abraham did in Genesis 18, for example, when three strangers, messengers from God, came to visit him and assure him that he and his barren wife Sarah would indeed have a son, even in their old age. Though even then, of course, he served the guests with the help of servants. But, said this Arab scholar, it is never the custom anywhere, anytime, that the master serves his slaves. That is simply out of the question. Be dressed and ready to wait on the Son of Man when he comes. But surprise! When the Son of Man comes, he will gird up his loins and wait on you. Hmm. Suddenly it doesn't feel quite as bad to be compared to a slave, does it? And then as Kenneth Billy describes, it gets even better as far as we are concerned. Listen, be like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. But the Greek word for waiting is more accurately translated as expecting, which is an active waiting rather than a sitting back doing nothing kind of waiting. While the specific Greek word for return found only here in the New Testament is more accurately translated as withdraw. 
That is, the master of the parable does not simply return from a wedding feast when it's over. He intentionally withdraws and he leaves the wedding banquet before it's over. The Arabic translation of Luke 12, verse 36, reads like this. Be like servants who are expecting their master when he withdraws from the wedding banquet. And why does the master withdraw? Why does he leave that wedding banquet early? Just when everybody's having fun. Because he cares about, because he loves his servants. There he is at the wedding feast, eating and drinking along with his friends and all of his peers, enjoying himself. But as he's enjoying himself, he thinks about all those servants waiting for him faithfully at home. And because he cares for them, because his heart is suddenly overwhelmed with his love for them, he quietly slips away from the wedding party and heads for home, where to everybody's shock, he takes off his fancy outer party clothes, pulls up his underrobe, ties a robe or belt around his weight, calls all his slaves to the table, and then with great joy and love, because this is so far beyond the pill, it can only be with great joy and love, the master waits on them, and he serves them. That, says Jesus, is why we are always to live in a state of being ready. Because when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes, he's going to pull off a huge surprise, this great unexpected reversal. There we are, dressed and ready to serve him. But before you and I can even make a move, he comes into the room and begins to serve you. But that sort of thing is simply unheard of, isn't it? Yes. Yet isn't that exactly what we see Jesus doing his whole time during his ministry on earth? He came as one of us. And as one of us, he lived his earthly life and career, if you will, as a slave, as servant, taking the position of the lowest of the low. Why? Simply because this is how it is with the kingdom of God and the God of that kingdom. This is a kingdom unlike any other. This is a God unlike any other so-called gods that people worship. Jesus explained this great reversal to his disciples once before he got to Jerusalem. You remember, I'm sure. When the disciples James and John once asked them if they could have the places of honor when his kingdom comes, Jesus taught them that the rulers of this world lorded over others, but that the rulers in his world, in God's kingdom, serve others. Whoever wants to become great among you, Jesus said, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But, but isn't the Son of Man, the one to whom all the kingdoms of this world will be given, before whom every knee will one day bow. Then soon after entering Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, and blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus is at table with his disciples for the last time in the upper room, when of all things writes Luke, 
These guys were not the brightest lights in the candelier. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. That's when Jesus repeats what he had said earlier, that the king of the Gentiles lorded over them, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the one who rules should be like the one who serves. And then that question which nobody needed to answer because Jesus so clearly answered it for them, for who is greater, the one who is at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at table? But I am among you as one who serves. And you remember, most of you, I suspect, what the gospel writer John remembered from that Last Supper. How Jesus rose from the dinner, took off his outer clothing, girded his loins with a towel, poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Yes, this is the Lord we are talking about. Not just any old Lord, not just the Lord of Downton Abbey, but the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Has he forgotten who he is? And Jesus looks up at us from his position, which is a place lower than ours, and he says, no, I haven't forgotten who I am. It's just that you have the wrong idea about what it means to be Lord in the kingdom of God. To be Lord means to be a servant. And clearly the early church understood it at least in principle, if not always in practice, because one of the earliest Christian hymns recorded is the one quoted by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians chapter 2. First he writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is, think like Jesus when it comes to your attitude to other people. And then he quotes, this hymn, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Who did not consider? This familiar hymn pictures Jesus, if you will, long before he came to earth, thinking deeply about what it means to be in very nature God. As the Son of God from all eternity, equal with God, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, thinking about what that means for him, he arrives at this stunning conclusion no one of us could ever have imagined. It's crazy. He who has always been in very nature God, equal with God, decides that this does not mean that he should use his being God to his own advantage or for his own good, but that the best way to truly be God is to empty himself and take the form of a servant. The eternal Son of God, God the Son, chooses to become a human being, as we'll celebrate once Advent begins, and live as a human being the life of a household slave. Jesus concluded that this is the best way, the most natural way, to express what it is to be in very nature God. Think about it. Do you see what this means? 
It means that in becoming human, in becoming a servant, the eternal Son of God did not give up being in very nature God, did not give up equality with God, but revealed what being in very nature God and equal with God is all about. God's mind, the way God thinks, is that to be God is to empty himself for the life of the world. God, that is, does not set aside his glory by becoming one of us. This is how God expresses his real glory. Here is the fundamental character of the God and creator and redeemer whom we worship and adore. In a world where power is seen in terms of self-assertion, God's power is revealed in terms of self-emptying. Jesus becoming human, just like you and I, though without sin. His life of humble service, his death in the cruelest manner possible, a cross for our sin, and finally his resurrection from the dead. All of it tells us and anyone who has ears to hear that being God and therefore to be like God, to be renewed in the image in which we were created, is to be self-emptying, is to be a servant. You see, this is the uniqueness of the Christian faith above all others. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This being a servant to others, that's what makes God tick. No religion in the world except the Christian faith has such a God. A God who becomes a slave a God who is obedient unto death for the sake of those he came to serve and to save is the God of the kingdom. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to proclaim to the world. And because Jesus lived as a servant and was obedient even to death on a cross, that old hymn concludes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. But note, Jesus is given the name Lord not because he is on that throne of heaven and earth, but because he left that throne and lived as a servant, and because in living as a servant, he clearly revealed that he understood what it means to be Lord. Be dressed, ready for service. Keep your lamps burning. And can you believe it? Truly, I tell you, the master will dress himself to serve, will have you recline at the table, and will come and he will wait on you. Really, of course, it's what he does every time we come to the Lord's table, isn't it? You understand what all this means for us? When Jesus calls us to be dressed and ready for his return by living as servants, he's not calling us to something beneath our dignity, beneath our station. We were created in the image of God. You've heard that already this morning. Which means that we were created to reflect the nature of and character of God. 
which means we are most fully who we are created to be when we most fully reflect the nature and the character of God and the place where and the one in whom we see most clearly what being God is all about is Jesus. Jesus came to be our servant. In Jesus we come to see that there is no other God but the servant God. There is no other Lord but the servant Lord. There is no other king but the servant king. And you and I are most fully who we were created to be when we live like him. To be a servant might be beneath the dignity of Lord Grantham and his family of Downton Abbey, but it is not and never will be beneath the dignity of a follower of Jesus. To be a servant is our dignity. This is what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. What being human in the image of God is finally all about. We are most like God, most like whom we were made to be, when like God, we gird our loins with a towel and we serve up the grace and the love and the kindness of God in words or in deeds to others. That means that self-serving, selfish ambition, getting ahead of the competition, vanity, looking out for number one, attitudes so common and prevalent, whether in the world or in the church or in your family or in your marriage or in your place of work or in your school, are not just wrong attitudes, but doomed attitudes. The truth of this little parable that to be like God, to be great, is to serve. It's like the law of gravity. You can never break it, but you can break yourself against it. You can ignore it at peril of your life, your relationships, both with one another and above all, with God. We live dressed and ready for the coming of the Son of Man simply by living like the Son of Man waiting on tables, washing feet, putting our lives in his name at the disposal of others. Truly, I tell you, the master will dress himself to serve. It is not a mistranslation, and it is not a printing mistake. Instead, it is the truth about the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom that sets us free to be who we were created to be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, how amazing, how amazing to worship a serving God. How amazing to have a Savior who took on our flesh, who gave his life for us, who came in order to serve and to save. May your image, gracious God, be deeply expressed and lived out also in our lives so that others too may come to see in Jesus, the Savior who's coming, we remember again in the weeks to come in the season of Advent, so that others too may see and know and love and live in the light of your goodness and grace.
Help us to be dressed and ready, always willing to serve. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.